I just assumed, okay, I'm just going to get some term insurance. If I die while I'm young, I have it's I get it gets paid out right to the folks that I have that are going to be the beneficiaries, and that's it, right? Mm-hmm. That's the purpose. And so, one of the things you first explained to me is that that insurance comes in different shades. Mm-hmm. And so, we have term that correct me if I'm wrong. It's exactly as I describe you. I think you've signed me up with a twenty yes a twenty year policy. Mm-hmm which is very affordable to a few hundred dollars mm-hmm. and it's a million or $2 million. It's something. Yes. It's very reasonable. And, uh, and so that's very affordable. So then the other side is whole life and whole life insurance, I believe is what you were just referencing. And from what I understand, if you do a Google search, everyone that's listening is going to agree. Oh my Lord, this makes no sense. Why would I do it? It's a scam and it, no one needs it. And it's a joke. Just get term and invest the rest. Yes. That's what I've always been told until a couple financial advisors that I trusted that I thought were just salespeople. And I consider you one of them explained to me the value of those type of policies and why very smart, wise, wealthy people choose them for tax Mm. purposes, for planning, estate purposes, all these reasons. Yes. So let's start there. So let's explain what whole life is and why in the world it gets a bad rap? Very good questions. Yeah. Just backing up slightly, what I was talking about is how the proceeds of life insurance in general would be used to produce income if the person had died. Okay. So we hadn't got quite quite to the point where... So my, my point is when determining life insurance, it's not getting to which type yet. It's getting to the correct amount. Oh, you're just talking about the face amount. Yes. Correct amount for for this particular family uh, and the so death benefit specifically. Yes. So that's the first criteria is understanding if in the event. Well, I guess not in the event we're all going to die. So it's just uh, at the time what what the face amount of that benefit would be. Yes, and then we would get to the composition of that death benefit, how it should be structured within different types of policies, whether it should be all term insurance, and. So you're you're right. It does have a bad rap, um, and for good reason in in some ways, but in many ways, uh, it's a shame because the people who should have it don't have enough, and the people who shouldn't have it have too much. Interesting. And I think I have a few reasons. Can't wait for you to explain that further. In my in previously in my career as a financial advisor, I also taught uh, a class every two weeks on Wednesday mornings. And most of the people who attended the class were younger. And I was a little uh, surprised at some of the cases they brought to me for advice on that they were pushing, for want of a better word, whole life insurance. And I advised them not to. Um, And I think that uh, maybe younger advisors are trying to make it in the business. And they think by selling a whole life policy, uh, it may it means they're going to make it. Um, I I don't think that's. Me, I don't think that's they're the going to make way. it because it's more profitable for them. Is that the purpose? Is that- yes. And what happens is the person has a a hundred thousand dollar whole life insurance policy, a lower income family, for example, um, that they can ill afford at the expense of having the correct amount of death benefit in place. And that's unforgivable in this industry, but it happens. 
And so if I was selling whole life insurance and I switch tomorrow and I'm going to be a financial advisor in general, what can I expect in terms of commission? What's pretty standard across the industry? Uh, the, the companies that don't have the track record, that don't have the track record of dividends that add to the rate of the, add to the return, add to the cash accumulation, pay more. Um, in my experience, it's, it's roughly 40 to 50% of the first year premium is received by the advisor. And then if they share it with others, then so be it. Is it accurate? I've heard that usually there's a, that it's front loaded. So the fees for financial advisors, that first year, two, three years, they, it's the bulk of the payment. And then there's occasionally a trail. So if they're going to be on, you know, have this policy for years, mm -hmm. they get maybe 1% or a small amount into the policy until they stop paying. Is that about right? Yes. And the industry has changed actually in recent, in just um, probably the last 12 months where the upfront cost to the advisor is much, much lower, but the trail has been improved, which I think is a good thing. Because the cost or the benefit, the payment, the, the commission? It's, well, the, the structure of how the advisor is paid, I think is going to be more in line with advisors making sure that it's the right thing for the client to do in the first place, because to, to be paid properly, that they, they want to be in the industry for a long time, they're going to get a better trail for a longer amount of time. If these people are looking for a, a quick commission and then they fail out of the business, they're not getting all of that trail and therefore... The way that the way it's paid, I completely agree with the changes. And the only reason I mention it and I bring it up is because I'd like the transparency to understand essentially what you're getting paid and when and how and why all these things. I know in my industry, what I get paid is on a piece of paper. Yes. And everyone gets to see it. It's not a hidden fact. They understand it's very black and white. Mm -hmm. And so it can make for some uncomfortable moments. Um, but with my, I've had previous financial advisors. I had no idea what they were earning. They certainly didn't tell me. And they didn't tell me that on this policy, I can make double what I can make on this policy. Mm. And I know in real estate, there has been quite a bit of discussion about, especially on the buyer side, understanding what I can get paid if mm. I sell you the house here or the house across the street, because they don't always offer the same compensation. And so wouldn't it be nice to know as a buyer that if I was going to sell this home, I'm going to earn double what I can earn across the street? Because I, you might question some of the comments being made by your sales professional. Yes. And so it's just, I think it's important for people to understand when it comes to who's helping advise them where they're making their money. So it is a whole life is more lucrative to sell than term. That's a, that's a state, true statement, correct? Uh, I think that, um, not necessarily. Really? I suppose where I'm going with that is if they put the correct amount of death benefit in place, they're not going to earn that much. It's not going to be that much of a difference. And, but by, I suppose, younger advisors trying to get a whole life policy in place for whatever reason, if they sold a term insurance policy for the correct amount, there wouldn't be anywhere near the difference between the two. Um, so the people, my I have very clear views as to who um, 
who should be considering whole life insurance? Um, first and foremost, uh, the correct amount of death benefit should be in place first before we even get to that conversation. Um, but if, if we have to factor in several things, we have to factor in income, tax bracket. Um, I believe that um, people should be maximizing the contributions into their 401k at, at the very least to get the full match from their employer before they do anything else, because that's free money. Um, just backing up slightly, um, rule of thumb calculation that people should be saving between 20 and 30% of their earnings per year to get them to the point where they can float on their own from their savings. How often do people save 20 to 30% in your experience? Um, that seems awfully high. It is. Seems and, ambitious. And it's also inclusive of the employer's 401k contribution. It's not all of their money. It's money from their employer to their, that contribution is included in that 20%. But 20 to 30, 30 would be at the very high end, um, not many, 20, a lot more, um, some, some in between, but mostly, most people are aiming for that, but they're falling a little below 20, they might be at 15. But and I, I think those percentages are challenging for me to, to, to grasp because I, I serve people, at, I've sold multi-multi-million dollar homes and I've sold $200,000 condos. And to tell someone that is living virtually paycheck to paycheck yes. to save 30% of that money, they'd say, good luck. Like I have, you know, I like food with my meals. So it's just not in the cards for them. And it's, uh, you know, but I think being extremely intelligent and I have a family right now that I'm trying to help buy their very first home and they just chose to go on a vacation and they spent 50% of their down payment money on the vacation. <laughs> And now they're no longer qualified. And so under, and I, I'm certain they haven't spoken to someone like you. And so they're making decisions sometimes out of order. Um, but I guess at, for anybody, you want to you ideally hit that 20 to 30% mark and find ways to live within your means. And I think 30 really comes from people who are starting later. Okay. And they, they don't have the years that you mentioned, which is so important. So the sooner you start, the better. Um, but 20 is, 20 is usually the aim. It doesn't mean that people get there. They, it makes them aware of what they ideally would be setting aside, but we have to live now also. And it's, we don't want to be saving and not doing anything with our lives just for some time tomorrow. And, you know, some people don't get to tomorrow. So there's a farmer in Howard County that you know, lived, I think he retired it. My brother would know if he was here, he's going to correct me, but he, he lived and he farmed and he finally retired, finally sold. And he was going to live well. He sold, he made a couple million bucks off of his land. He finally, you know, lived very modest lifestyle his whole life. And I'm, I'm pretty confident uh, that he, he literally died the week he, he cashed out and mm. he, he choked on a steak. And choked on this that was it that was his big th it was just it was so ridiculous because he finally uh, you know he fretted over selling that farm forever and he finally was going to enjoy the relaxation of retirement and that's what happened to him so living a little bit while you're on this journey is important so the 20 percent, matt let, let's say 20 you know um 
then we then we have to work out well where does that twenty percent come from? And so in a four hundred one k these days you can put twenty two and a half thousand starting in two thousand and twenty three. So there's where the first part of it should come from, and hopefully there's a match from the employer. So so it really it really. You'll see where I'm going in terms of income is important. The level of income is important as to whether whole life insurance is something that should be considered or not. Okay. So if if they need to be setting aside 20%, 22,500 for an awful lot of people, if they just maximize their contributions into their 401k, they've they've satisfied that 20% and some. In fact, then they won't be maximizing their 401k. And if I, I don't... If I was in a in a four hundred one k plan, I don't get taxed, correct? Or do I get taxed? Explain how that works. A four hundred one k plan is a um, is tax deferred growth, so you can choose these days. You can choose to have a pre tax, and therefore it helps now. Um, so that twenty two and a half thousand would be removed from your income for tax purposes, as if you never earned it, which a lot of people are going to be looking for that the way things are going at the moment. Um, so employers have Roth 401ks and they have 401k. So you can have the pre-tax and, and most, some employers actually mean they, um, allow you to split it between the two to have something that makes sense right now because we need it, but also something that will make sense later where we've paid the taxes on this money now. So we don't have to pay the taxes on it later on when it's grown to. And that's a Roth, correct? Yes. So a Roth, you're going to pay taxes on today and then put it in the Roth. Yes. But then when you take it out, it's tax-free. It's tax-free. So if you expect to be in a higher tax bracket later on or equal, it's nice to have some money that's already been taxed and you don't owe anything. I've heard another advisor describe that as prepaid in your tax. Yes. And so you can even convert some of your regular, if you have IRA or something else, you can convert it to a Roth and pay your tax. And so as it continues to grow, you can withdraw it tax-free, correct? You can. And you're also, you're also not, um, you're not paying taxes on what it's grown to. So I, I use a, an analogy in, in England, um, there's a famous horse race, which is similar to Preakness. And, you know, you could put a small little bet on this kind of thing with five pounds, 10 pounds, there's a betting tax. If you pay the betting tax, which might have been one or two percent on your wager, and um, your horse won, your winnings are tax-free. All of the winnings, which will be many, many times the wager. If you did not pay the betting tax on the wager and your horse won, you pay the betting tax on all of your winnings. Mm. So in a similar way, so you're not paying. You're paying the betting. So with, with the Roth style plan, you're paying the betting tax on the contribution to not have to pay the ta- the betting tax on what it's grown to over 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm.